Hello, my name is Atul Devdar. I am a rheumatologist at uh, Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. And I'm going to speak about a poster that I had at this uh, ACR 2023 meeting. This is Be Agile study on bimekizumab, which is an IL-17A and IL-17F inhibitor for the treatment of ankylosing spondylitis or radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. This was a phase two study and the reason uh, what we presented here was a five-year uh, data on this study. And this is the only study that I'm aware of where the efficacy was looked at five years in a non-responder imputation fashion. As you know, most of the uh, drug companies, when they would do a study for efficacy, beyond one year, it's almost always observed cases. It's never non-responder imputation. Non-responder imputation is the strictest way you can look at the efficacy that the patient who drops out for any reason is considered to be non-responder. So this was a big study, despite it being a phase two study. It, uh, 303 patients were enrolled into the study. The first 12 weeks was the double-blind placebo-controlled. There were multiple dosages of bimekizumab which were used and the primary endpoint was at 12 weeks, but between 12 weeks and 48 weeks, it was dose blind. So 160 milligram and 320 milligram, these two dosages were used for bimikizumab uh, for patients with uh, active ankylosing spondylitis between week 12 <coughs> and week 48. And beyond week 48 up to week 256, which is five years, it was 160 milligram dose, which is the dose which is approved for the treatment of ankylosing spondylitis, as we know. So at 48 weeks, uh, the ASAS-40 response was in about 52% of the patients. Uh, and by end of the study, which is five-year study, non-respond imputation, the ASAS-40 response is 50%, which is quite interesting. The as-observed response is 73% but the non-responder imputation, and that's the importance of this study, the only study which goes non-responder imputation efficacy all the way till five years. So that's the ASAS 40 response of 50%, which is pretty good. They also looked at ASDAS, and this is, ASDAS is a continuous measurement, so this is multiple imputation, and the ASDAS went down to two, and the uh, spinal pain went down to two. It was starting at uh, eight, uh, when the patients got into the study by end of uh, five years, the pain, the spinal pain was down to two. And so all the efficacy endpoints have been looked at either by non-responder imputation or by multiple imputation uh, if it is a continuous measurement. They also looked at the safety and uh, that's always very important when you do five-year studies on IL-17A and F inhibitor. And IBD comes to our mind and IBD was uh, inflammatory bowel disease uh, the per 100 patient years um, exposure adjusted incidence rate for IBD was 0 0.8 per 100 patient years. The candida uh, rate was a little bit high, 7.6 uh, per 100 patient years. And these were, almost all of them were oral, vaginal, uh, some of them were esophageal, but there are no cases of uh, systemic candidiasis or systemic fungal infection. So overall, uh, an interesting um, end of the uh, course of this study of B Agile of Bimekizumab, phase two study going all the way up to five years and reporting the data with non-responder imputation, the strictest way one can look at the efficacy. Thank you.
I'm Anthony Chan. I'm from London, United Kingdom, reporting here at ACR 23 in San Diego for Rundown. Today we have um, listened to some very nice presentations here at the conference and I want to focus today on the issue of uh, radiographic progression and also the use of MRI in imaging in the area of axial spondyloarthritis. Firstly, there was a poster presentation today, uh, 1389, and this is from a Spanish uh, group who looked at their Spanish uh, registry, and these were patients diagnosed with axial spondyloarthritis who were biologic naive at the start of the uh, recruitment, and they followed them up for uh, 15 years. And what they wanted to know is what were the factors that predicted uh, radiographic progression, and roughly half of them were what we call fast progressors, and another half were slow progressors. When they looked at into the details of this, uh, some of the factors that we probably in the past would have considered as important factors for fast progression, such as male gender, the presence of baseline radiographic change, uh, high inflammatory markers, these were not uh, seen as to be strong factors in this study, uh, giving us insight into maybe there are other factors that may drive the radiographic progression. But they did find that the presence of preceding back pain prior to the diagnosis was one of the strongest factors for the radiographic progression. The other aspect from this study was that the rate of progression was much lower than what we have come to understand using what we call the Modified Stoke Ankylosing Spondylitis Score, or MSAS. In general, our understanding is there should be about a two-unit change over a period of two years in patients with axial spa. In this study, this was much lower, and the median was about 0.5 uh, in, 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 the, uh, in the study. And this is much lower than what we have known to be in the past. So I think this opens up for us to understand that there are inherent characteristics about the patients that we study uh, that may predict either they are fast progressors or slow progressors. And from there, we should individualize their treatment uh, in order to prevent the radiographic progression. The second study was, uh, was uh, poster number 1398 and with the increase of the use of, uh, radiogra uh, ra use of MRI in terms of diagnosing axial SPA, there's also the issue about standardization of the reporting and also the accuracy of the reporting. And one of the things that they have done is that they've used deep neural network, sort of machine learning type uh, algorithms to try to analyze the MRI scans where they looked over a huge number of scans and they found that the, this was uh, very accurate uh, uh, in the area of the curve uh, was about 0.9 uh, and this is close to what we would expect from a general radiologist. If, in terms of going forward, clearly more studies would need to be done uh, in terms of the use of uh, such uh, AI type techniques, deep neural network methods to try to detect the presence of inflammation around the sacroiliac joint in MRIs. But what could be useful here are two things. Firstly, with the shortage of skilled uh, radiologists, particular musculoskeletal radiologists, who are trained to look at these scans, this could be another way of trying to uh, standardize the reporting of uh, patients with suspected excess bar across many centers. Secondly, I think the use would be in research, where we have often have to have uh, readers to validate the, uh, the radiographic uh, findings in order for patients to be entered into clinical trials or for the, for the endpoint in terms of the outcome. Again, I think uh, such deep neural network technologies could be deployed in order to standardize some of the reporting that we see uh, in the field of Axel Spa, where 
the MRI is very much the cornerstone of both the diagnosis, the management and the follow-up of our patients. So I think two, two important studies here uh, from ACR23 today, which I hope uh, will uh, help us to understand and how we use and also um, manage our patients better uh, with the condition. Thank you. Hi everyone, Professor Peter Nash here, School of Medicine, Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane, reporting for Room Now, ACR Convergence in San Diego. We're going to talk about a couple of abstracts, 0514 and 0538, which are looking at difficult to treat axial spondylarthropathy. We'll talk later about difficult to treat psoriatic arthritis, and you know there's been a strong movement to define difficult to treat RA, so this is following along those lines. The first abstract comes from a French group and they're trying to define difficult to treat axial spar and they looked at a large French database and they found 23,000 AXPAR patients of which about a half had taken a biologic or a targeted synthetic DMARD. Now they followed those patients and they defined difficult to treat as having failed three biologic or targeted synthetic DMARDs or failing two that were of a different mechanism of action. So when they looked through this massive database to see who, which patients fitted that definition that they came up with, and you can argue whether it's reasonable or not reasonable, they found almost 10% across the board would be classified as a difficult to treat AXPAR and they found if they looked in the patients who had already failed a biologic or a targeted synthetic, you're talking about 20% of that population, one in five considered difficult to treat. So what were the factors that were um, predictors of being difficult to treat? Female gender, peripheral arthritis and peripheral symptoms, the presence of psoriasis, and then things like depression, hypertension, and smokers, when you compared not difficult to treat with difficult to treat. Now, this database has nothing about disease activity in it, which is one of its biggest limitations of this particular study. So the bottom line is, according to this definition, difficult to treat AXPAR is really quite common, and the question is, what is the implication? What are we going to do about it? And so we turn to the next abstract, which is 0538, which is a Spanish cohort of real-world patients, 101 of them, who are about to start a biologic DMARD for AXPAR. And these people had already failed a couple of biologics or targeted synthetics. And their definition of a good response was staying on the same drug for three years. And they found 42% of their patients had difficult to treat AXPAR. And the predictive factors, B27 negative, smokers again, relatively short symptom duration, having IBD or other comorbidities, or enthesitis. And they found that a six-month time point was a very good point to predict outcome, who was going to do well and who was going to be difficult. So what does all this mean? What are we going to do about these patients who are difficult to treat? We better stop them smoking. We better treat the peripheral comorbidities. And we better pay attention to the enthesitis, to the, the depression, the hypertension, etc. But really, if we can identify this group early, are they a group that needs more aggressive therapy at the beginning? Do they need combinations? 
and then you can simplify the regime with maintenance. So if you can identify the bad prognostic group early, maybe we'll treat them more aggressively, maybe we'll treat them differently, but at least we can work on these peripheral factors and do something about them. Identify the difficult to treat early, like at month six, and do something about limiting their difficulties over time. So that's all from now, and thank you for your attention. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from ACR 2023 in San Diego, coming to you from RoomNow.com, and I have the privilege of interviewing my friend, who's been my friend for a long time, Dr. Hilary Norton. She is a very accomplished rheumatologist, researcher, and patient who practices in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And um, thank you, Hillary, for agreeing to do this interview with me. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> tell me a little bit, and, and share with our viewers, if you don't mind, tell me about your personal experience with ankylosing spondylitis. Sure, sure. Well, it's no secret that I was eventually diagnosed with AS as an intern first month of intern year in the ICU, so no stress there, right? <laughs> no stress. <laughs> but, you know, that was following 10 years of issues with back pain and uveitis and misdiagnoses, and so, um, you know, I get that delay and what it really feels like, what that journey really feels like. <clears throat> and then, you know, like many patients, I was hesitant to start treatment for a variety of reasons. Um, I really get what patients are thinking on so many levels based with, you know, going to a, a big medication. So I know a little bit about the natural history of this disease and, and what happens when you're not treated. But I think that really helps me to understand what that patient is going through when we're having these discussions. So did your experience play a part into why you chose rheumatology? Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you're fabulous because of this experience alone, but what you provide to patients. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, it was on my radar, but you know, then I just spent all of my time reading about rheumatology. So, you know, my whole intern here, that's basically what I was doing when I wasn't studying other things. So it just made sense, right? <laughs> it was a natural fit. Right. Were you interested in clinical research and like at the, the nadir of your, your um, job search with your employment, your career? Yeah, you know, it's funny, private practice and clinical research was not on my radar when I finished fellowship at all and through a series of interesting events, I hit the ground running. I started my own private practice right out of fellowship and it's evolved over the years. So it's evolved we now have a robust clinical trial program which is so exciting for our patients really. So I love it. But outside of clinical research and private practice, you do a lot for advocacy. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I see a lot of patients who come to me, as we all do probably, for second opinions who have had experiences that they're less than happy with, and I get that. I mean, I get, uh, we're, we're burned out. Our jobs are hard, right? Yeah. We work really hard. So I understand that, that sometimes they want a little bit different fit. But the stories I hear really consistently when, when I meet new patients are, Thank you for listening. Nobody's ever listened to me before. And I think it's been very humbling as the years have gone on in my own practice. I've realized that, you know, we have our agenda. We want to treat to target. We want to get certain outcomes for the patient. We want to do the very best for them. 
But these diseases present in such a heterogeneous way, and sometimes simply listening and validating what people are going through, and then providing them with information to make informed decisions, as opposed to trying to make decisions for them, really goes a long way. So I think I've sort of settled a little bit, and I will give them time to think and, you know, to just really participate in their health. So you develop relationships with your patients? <laughs> no, I but joke. We hope to, right? I know that's well, what we, we hope do to. In rheumatology, yeah. right? I think I think we're all really good at that. But um, it's a process. I'm constantly learning and, and hopefully getting better, but it's a process. Well, you provide the color to the context, right? To everything that they're experiencing. And because of a shared experience, even though it may be different, it does provide um, almost like a common ground yes. to be able to start a conversation yes. and the understanding and the um, maybe the empathy and the sensitivity that it takes to practice rheumatology in 2023 and beyond. Yes. So um, what's next? What's on the radar for Dr. Norton? Well, we're growing the clinical trial program, so that's very exciting. We moved to a new building, but our practice is really focusing a lot more on wellness right now. So we're bringing in some new wellness options. That's what patients want. Um, we're going to start some interesting things around walking and nutrition. Um, th these are things that patients have been asking for. So That's awesome. Well, I'll come walk with this doc any day. So thank I would you. love that. I would too. <laughs> thank you so much, Hillary. You are thank you, just Rachel. a delight. And honestly, um, for this and other updates around ACR 2023, check out roomnow.com. And of course, follow Dr. Hillary Norton and myself on Twitter. HiRoomNow.com. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida, and I am joined by Dr. Katherine Bakewell from Utah, and we are currently in San Diego, California for ACR 2023. So we did a great update, which we really want you to watch, on the treatment options and updates from ACR 2023 for our spa patients. But now we're going to highlight something that is your passion and something you've done research in, which is imaging for our spa patients. So tell me a little bit, Catherine, about what we're talking about today. Thank you, and thank you for having me. This truly is my favorite topic in the world. If you're going to say imaging and spondyloarthritis, I will be there front row with my pen out. So this has been a great meeting. I want to highlight a couple different speakers first. So Dr. Alexis Ogdi out of UPenn. First, she gave us a fabulous review course lecture on the spondyloarthropathies, and then she and several others put together pearls and pitfalls in diagnosing non-radiographic axial spa, which can be kind of a black box still for a lot of people out in clinical practice. She talked to us about the differential diagnosis of non-radiographic XPA, and I think it's important for us in this nebulous realm of MRI findings to bear in mind that there are things that can trick us. And two of the most important that she highlighted, in addition to things like degenerative disease, were DISH, or that diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis, always a mouthful. Yes. And there is an update to the guidelines on that that says, we used to say, you know, if the DISH doesn't affect the SI joints. But now we know that it does. So this is an update oh. for all of us. Unfortunately, that differentiator is not real because you can get enthesophytes, bony bridging, hyperostosis in the SI joints with DISH. And so we, we want to sort of help differentiate that from our patients with spondyloarthritis. That's fascinating. Isn't it, though? We need to be aware of that. That's really, that's an ACR best for me. Thank you. Yeah. I know. I was getting, it yeah. really caught my eye and ear. 
Another differentiating thing that we have to bear in mind is the osteitis condensans ilii. And it is for a year after delivery. So it starts during pregnancy that we can get the changes of sacroiliitis on yes. MRI. But that can persist in high prevalence for a year postpartum. And so we want to be not fooled by that. You can still get the MRI in certain circumstances, but you really unfortunately can't trust, start to trust it in that sense for the inflammatory bone marrow edema changes for up to a year uh, postpartum. Yes. Do you watch those patients then closely? I mean, are you checking that imaging that early? So I say you, early, but it, it may not be for that patient. It may not be for that patient. And this is where you, you have to really put together your whole clinical picture. And so this is where Dr. Ogdi was saying, hey, look, I'm not telling you necessarily don't image in that time. If you have a patient where you need that image and it may help you guide decision, then absolutely check it. But you want to check it again okay. a year postpartum or more okay. because you may be surprised at what went away. Um, that is a great <laughs> lecture, and I'm going to go back again and review it. Is it that's the fun of yeah. the on-demand. Yeah. I love I that. <laughs> yes, ACR, please keep up the on-demand. But we, she also highlighted for us the increasing prevalence of non-radiographic. So bear in mind, a little history lesson all the way back to 1980, AXPA was 100% radiographic. It was all AS. Right, so by about the year 2000, we said there was about 20% of a diagnosis of non-radiographic 2020, 50, 50, that's where we are now. But it begs the question, by 2040, could we be looking at 80% non-radiographic as our imaging modalities get more sensitive? Wow. So I thought that was fun. So next I want to talk a little bit about Leanne Gensler's talk. Uh, she did a fabulous job as well. And she, again, highlighted the same issues around osteitis condensans ilii. And, and this is a separate topic brought in um, AI, so artificial mm -hmm. intelligence reading of our images, up and coming, and she showed us a study where AI, now the gold standard, were our most trained musculoskeletal radiologists looking at sacroiliac joint MRIs and compared that to the AI read for inflammatory and structural changes and showed us that AI did really pretty well. Wow. So it's not 100%. It's not to the level of the gold standard of the MSK radiologist, but stay tuned on that because I think we're going to see more and more integration of that in clinical care. And remember in those instances where our MRI is equivocal that a low-dose CT can help us differentiate those structural changes. That's huge. I thought so too. Mm -hmm. So very last thing I want to leave you with, and I know I'm going long. No, um, you're perfect. <laughs> I could sit and listen to you all day. It's so sweet. It's true. This is, you know, I, uh, this is my fun stuff. So yeah. let's, let's talk ultrasound and enthesitis. I will mention one abstract. So this was uh, by Maria Antonia Diagostino Mata, as we lovingly call her, yeah. uh, from the Ultimate Trial. So this is abstract number 2243. She showed us in this trial, so this was a, a, the, the you know primary trial was already released looking at secukinumab treatment in psoriatic arthritis patients with a primary outcome of the GLOSS or the Cinevitis yeah. score by ultrasound. It was a positive trial. But in this abstract, it, it correlated side by side the spark or a clinical enthesitis index next to an ultrasonographic index and unfortunately there was poor correlation which for me mm -hmm. highlights the importance of ultrasound yep. that the clinical enthesitis we're measuring tenderness but tenderness is not always inflammation you're right and so that discrepancy I think underscores the importance of both forms of evaluation and I will leave you last again with a, a more to come you know let's talk next year about the duet trial so this is the Diagnostic Ultrasound Enthesitis Tool. This is a, a work by Grappa, led by Leahy Ader, uh, Sibel Iden, and Gurjeet Kaley. 
and they have enrolled it's 17 different sites eight different countries these are ultrasound um, experts in psoriatic arthritis comparing psoriatic arthritis psoriasis without arthralgias and healthy controls with osteoarthritis fibromyalgia and asking the question can we develop an ultrasonographic diagnostic tool for patients with psoriatic arthritis. And so all of the ultrasound data, it's finished and rolling, it's being analyzed. We will have more on that next year. I'll just leave you with this little tidbit, which is that 63% of the patients in the clinical trial for psoriatic arthritis had their therapy changed as a result of going through that systematic ultrasound examination. Um, and, and so I think that highlights the importance of looking at ultrasound in this way. Absolutely. Well, I'm an ultrasound aficionado like you are. So I really appreciate it. And we are going to touch base on this next year for imaging and all things Spondy and all things PSA. So I really appreciate you. Thank you so much, Dr. Bakewell, for being here. And stay tuned to RoomNow.com for more from San Diego for ACR 2023. Thank you for having me. My name is Atul Deva. I'm a rheumatologist in Portland, Oregon. And at this meeting, I presented the data on Invigorate One study. Invigorate One study is a study on IV secukinumab in the treatment of axial spondyloarthritis. As we know, subcutaneous secukinumab is approved for the treatment of psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and the whole spectrum of axial spondyloarthritis, which is radiographic and non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. And now we have completed an intravenous secukinumab study for the treatment of axial spondyloarthritis. So this advantage, of course, an IV drug could be that in the U.S., of course, there are certain uh, insurance companies such as Medicare where it is financially, economically suitable for the patient to go on an IV biologic. And secondly, this is IV molecules are generally weight-based. So for a bigger size patient, uh, IV biologic can be better than subcutaneous because it is weight-based. So this was a study done on patients who were diagnosed with axial spondyloarthritis, both radiographic and non-radiographic, and they had to be, they had to have uh, been classified according to the SS classification criteria, and they had to have active disease. So active disease for radiographic axial SPA is BASDI more than four and back pain more than four. And for non-radiographic axial SPA, they had to have either positive MRI or positive C-reactive protein in addition to uh, having been diagnosed and classified according to the SS criteria. And there were total 526 large study, 526 patients, equally divided between placebo and IV secukinumab, about 260 each um, in the two groups. The dose of IV secukinumab used in the study was at the baseline, it was 6 milligram per kilogram at baseline, and then 3 milligram per kilogram every four weeks. And placebo, of course, uh, continued on placebo up to week 16 when the primary endpoint was ASAS-40 response. And after uh, week 16, all the placebo patients rolled on to receiving IV secukinumab, but they received only 3 milligram per kilogram, did not get the 6 milligram per kilogram loading at that time. The primary endpoint was ASAS-40, as I said, and it was 41% in the active group compared to 23% in the placebo group and the study continued for up to 52 weeks and uh, there it was 75 this is complete risk analysis 75 percent versus 67 percent patients who switched from placebo to the active drug 
there were eight or nine secondary endpoints uh, looked at in a hierarchical fashion, ASDAS, uh, inactive disease, and uh, BASFI, bath ankylosing spondylitis, uh, functional index, and SF36, and AS quality of life, etc., etc. All of these secondary endpoints were met, uh, so the study was successful. The safety profile, there, was, there were no new signals whatsoever. IBD comes to your, our mind at just about 0.8 per 100 patient years, which is very similar. Candida infections were not much. Uh, this study was done during COVID, and there were some smattering of cases who had COVID uh, during the study, since the study was done during that time. But none of the patients uh, stopped the study, either because of COVID or IBD or Candida or what have you. Uh, there was one death in the placebo. Actually, there was one death in the 52-week uh, part, which was myocardial infarction unrelated to the study. So overall, um, IV secukinumab seems to be effective in the treatment of excess spondyloarthritis. The interesting news is on 8th of October of this year, FDA approved the IV secukinumab for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and excess spondyloarthritis. But interestingly, the dose they have approved is 1.75 milligram per kilogram, which was not even the dose which was studied in, in, in the study that I presented. It was 6 milligram per kilogram bolus and then 3 milligram per kilogram going forward. The reason why FDA did that was they looked at the Cmax, the concentration, maximum concentration uh, IV in the patient's blood after receiving the 3 milligram per kilogram dose. And they discovered that the IV concentration, maximum concentration was way higher than the 300 milligram subcutaneous dose that you and I would use in our daily practice, the subcutaneous dose of 300 milligram. And so the FDA said that we need to give the dose which is equivalent to between 150 and 300. And they did uh, these uh, studies on the paper and then they came up with this 1.75 milligram per kilogram and that's the dose that has been approved but the drug is available now for treatment uh, IV secukinumab for the treatment of uh, axial spinal arthritis. Thank you very much. Hi this is Dr. Robert Chow from Northern Virginia reporting live for Room Now from ACR 2023. Um, as we're wrapping up day one here of ACR I uh, really wanted to point out one uh, really interesting abstract where uh, the worlds of I think technology and, and rheumatology really uh, intersect. And this was abstract uh, 0530. And this focused on the impact of upadacitinib as measured by a, a wearable medical device focusing on physical activity in patients with ankylosing spondylitis from the SELECT ACCESS-2 trial. So that was kind of a mouthful, but pretty much what they did is they looked at over uh, 400 patients with uh, either an inadequate response or intolerance to biologics and they were randomized to receive either upadacitinib uh, 15 milligrams daily daily, or a placebo. Pretty much they slapped on either, it was called a, a medical grade wrist worn device, which is think, you know, Apple Watch or um, Fitbit and whatnot for about 14 weeks. And they noticed that at 14 weeks, patients treated with upadacitinib had a numerical improvement in steps per day with about 11% improvement compared to placebo. Notably, in patients with a sedentary lifestyle at baseline, a 22% improvement was observed in the upadacitinib group compared to 4% in the placebo group. In patients with an active lifestyle at baseline, 
numerically better maintenance of daily step counts were maintained compared to placebo, where they found that sometimes the step counts declined over time. I think overall, this data is what we expected. You know, we expect that when we make patients feel better, they're going to move more. But I think a few points I wanted to point out are one, it's good to have actual data, you know, how much more. Uh, and if we can quantify that by steps and the improvement of physical activity and movement, I can see that maybe even being used as a measurement marker in future studies. And I think, you know, we also have way more data now from these smart watches or smart devices. You know, I think Fitbit really was a hot thing, I want to say about a decade ago. You know, I, I looked at my Apple Watch this morning and I noticed there's just so much more data than just steps climbed. Um, you know, quick look, I saw there's obviously stairs climbed, um, there's Mets even, there's walking speed, um, walking step length, heart rate, of course walking asymmetry. They can kind of tell you which side you're leaning on more. Um, I think that's also very interesting for our diseases. Calories burned and even more data that we don't even know how to use yet. Um, I think these devices, you know, we know they're always collecting data in the background, whether we know it or like it. Um, many people have them and there could be even years of data, um, including prior diagnosis and prior drug use that we haven't tapped into yet. So I think very promising initial study focusing on uh, these smart devices and our diseases. I hope to see more in the future and maybe even at this ACR. Uh, but thank you for tuning in to Room Now for live coverage of ACR 2023. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter. Oh, I guess it's called X. X. Follow me on x.com at Dr. RBC. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines, reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2023. In clinical practice, we get patients with chronic back pain who have imaging features suggestive of inflammation or degenerative changes. But what if these findings overlap in a single patient? How do we approach the diagnosis? That being said, I wanted to highlight abstract number 1862, which described overlapping spinal imaging features among patients with a diagnosis of degenerative changes of the spine, DISH or diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis, and radiographic AXPA. The study was a cross-sectional analysis of a real-life cohort of patients referred to a tertiary rheumatology center who presented with chronic low back pain. Their cohort were mostly males with a mean age of 63.2 years, a relatively older group, who had been diagnosed with either degenerative changes of the spine, DISH, or AXPA. When the study investigators compared the thoracic and lumbar spine x-rays and MRIs of the three spinal diagnosis groups, they found a significant overlap of inflammatory and degenerative features. For the results, as expected, inflammatory lesions on conventional radiographs of the thoracic and the lumbar spines were more prevalent in the AXPA group, but it was also seen in both DISH and spinal degeneration groups. Similarly, bone marrow edema was also seen in the thoracic and lumbar spine MRIs of the patients with degenerative changes and DISH. Well, what could be the explanation for these overlaps? There was really no mention of it in the study, 
but may be worth exploring in future investigations. What's the take-home message we can get from this? Knowing that inflammatory and degenerative overlaps can exist in these three conditions, as defined by the study, we should always correlate clinical and imaging findings and consider mimickers of disease, especially if patients would present differently or would not respond to conventional treatment. Since the thoracic and lumbar spines were the only areas imaged in this study, and of course it was probably because this was the only focus of the study, logic would dictate that in clinical practice, if we were considering alternative diagnosis, imaging of additional areas such as the cervical spine or the SIJ or requesting for blood tests would make for a more conclusive diagnosis. But of course, that's a different discussion altogether. And given um, these results, well, we could um, we could wait for further investigations in the future that could help us make a more conclusive um, finding regarding these overlaps. Follow me at Rumorapa and tune into Room now for more reports and videos of the ACR Convergence 2023. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines, reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2023. I found an interesting study by the group of Dr. Laura Pasolent, I hope I pronounced her name correctly, from Canada with abstract number 1402, which was presented in the poster sessions earlier today. The investigators aim to determine whether Expo patients attending their urban rheumatology clinic were meeting the recently published Canadian 24-hour movement guidelines. So these guidelines integrate evidence-based targets for physical activity, sleep, and sedentary behaviors and have three core recommendations. Move more, including moderate to vigorous physical activity, or what's referred to in the study as the MVPA, reduce second sedentary time, and be able to sleep well. Now, in order to, to measure these outcomes and profile patients, study participants were given a wrist-mounted accelerometer, which was worn for 24 hours over a seven-day period. And additionally, one of the study objectives included evaluation of whether there was a discrepancy between objective and subjective measures of activity and sleep. So participants were also asked to answer and complete the International Physical Activity Questionnaire. Now, all of the participants met the MVPA targets, which was a minimum of 150 minutes of MVPA per week, as well as sedentary behavior limits of no, no more than eight hours daily. However, only a small portion, about 37.8%, met the sleep target of seven to eight hours of sleep. Now, the results mean that the participants are highly engaged in physical activity and had low minimal sedentary behavior, but they had poor quality. Also, the participants had a tendency to overestimate sleep quality and underestimate their 
subjective engagement in physical activity. Although the sample size of the study was small and limits strong conclusive data to be made, the finding of poor sleep quality reinforces the fact that this parameter continues to affect the quality of life of patients with AXPA. Therefore, therefore, further investigations are needed to better understand sleep quality and patterns in AXPA. In addition, longer follow-up may be needed to further validate the results. Follow me at Rumorampa and tune in to Room Now for more reports and videos of the ACR Convergence 2023. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting from Northern Virginia for Room Now live coverage of ACR 2023. I wanted to focus on an abstract, uh, really looking at a head-to-head -head study. Uh, we all love head-to-head -head studies, and this is abstract 0522, which was a subgroup analysis of the SURPASS uh, trial from last year. Um, just to recap on that, that was a head-to-head -head phase three randomized controlled trial uh, on secukitimab and, and adalimumab biosimilar in axial spondylarthritis patients in terms of radiographic progression. And they found similar efficacy and both were equally uh, efficacious in preventing radiographic progression in these patients. This subgroup analysis looked for differences by baseline syndesmophytes and CRP status. So in the over 859 patients, 76% had an elevated CRP level, 73% had syndesmophytes, and 54% had both elevated CRP levels and syndesmophytes at baseline. The radiographic outcomes at two years were similar in both treatment arms, regardless of these predictive factors, such as syndesmophytes or the elevated CRP levels. However, independently, the group without syndesmophytes showed the least radiographic progression in all treatment groups. And this was followed by the group without elevated CRP levels. Of course, conversely, the group with elevated CRP levels and then the group with syndesmophytes had higher uh, radiographic progression. Although neither syndesmophytes nor elevated CRP levels distinguished themselves between either treatment arms, we can say that the presence of syndesmophytes was a stronger predictor of radiographic progression than CRP levels overall. So I think this is something I will definitely take to my practice in treating uh, axial spondylarthritis patients you know, focusing even closer on syndesmophytes and CRP levels. So thank you for tuning into Room Now for live coverage of ACR 2023. Please follow me on X at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Hi, Room Now. I am Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you from ACR 2023 in beautiful San Diego, California. And I have the pleasure of talking about everything that's new in 2023 with my dear friend, Dr. Alexis Ogdi. So Alexis, first, how's your ACR going? So far, so good. Fun to see all the faces. And San Diego's a great place to have the ACR. I totally agree. But we're East Coasters, so we can say that. Yeah, exactly. So tell me what's new in our field of spondyloarthritis. What do you find really salient this year? Yeah, so if I even just think about the trials that are being presented this time. So we have two trials of IV secukinumab. So, you know, obviously the data is not surprising. Secukinumab works compared to placebo in psoriatic arthritis and spondyloarthritis. 
But the nice thing is that IV secutinumab is now available. Yeah. So I think that having a dosing regimen and having that available, especially for our Medicare patients, and uh, and then also though for our patients who are obese. So yes. you know we often see that drug kind of wearing off, and so it'll be nice to really dose that by body weight now. So. So I actually didn't think about that as being an additional feather in its cap, but I do think that's really important. Yeah. It's access to though. We have to yeah. be able to get it. Exactly. So that's one. Um, new TIC2 inhibitor being presented, uh, TAC279, doesn't even have a name yet, and it's a phase two study in psoriatic arthritis. And it looks very similar to Ducravacitinib, so at least there'll be another uh, TIC2 inhibitor coming. So Ducravacitinib still approved for psoriasis, not yet PSA, still waiting for that phase three. Yep. But at least we have a new class coming and ga- gathering more data around that. Good. Now that's awesome. And then third, we have the foremost trial. So another new trial, new patient population in psoriatic arthritis. So this is a sub, uh, subset of patients with psoriatic arthritis with oligoarticular disease. Okay. So first trial in oligoarticular disease, helping us understand how to study this population and maybe the role for where a primalast should be used. Now, you participated in foremost, did you not? Uh, only as in reviewing data and providing right. input. But that's important, right? We need to have the context to build the story for our patients. No, I really appreciate it. I love being here in San Diego, and I love being here with you. Thank you so much. <laughs> As always, but you know me. So, um, and, and check us out on roomnow.com for this and more information, and we will be happy to tell you about anything spa-related and PSA-related as we continue on at ACR 2023. I'm Anthony Chan from London, United Kingdom, reporting here for Room Now that's in San Diego, ACR 23. Today is another uh, day where we've uh, seen a lot more presentations here at the meeting. And one of the fields of rheumatology that has uh, certainly been expanding is the use of ultrasound, in particular musculoskeletal ultrasound. But one of the issues that we want to discuss is about the teaching and the delivery of ultrasound uh, to the users. How do we find a way that we can deliver teaching in a more effective manner uh, for users? So I'm here today joined by Dr. Sebastian uh, Valentin Schaffer. Uh, who is from the um, University of Bonn in Germany. And he has presented today a very nice work uh, in the abstract number 2079 uh, on the use of teledidactic way of uh, implementing teaching versus uh, on-site teaching. So, Sebastian, uh, Valentin, sorry, uh, welcome to today's uh, meeting. And I wonder whether you could take us through the work that you've been doing. That's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Nice to to be able to present uh, our abstract. Well, what we did, uh, we have been implementing point-of-care ultrasound uh, at the University of Bonn. I'm the ultrasound director and also the head of rheumatology. So I really try to make rheumatology as sexy as possible for medical students. And we have an ultrasound curriculum which is published, the MUTE study, musculoskeletal ultrasound in dermatology, which was focused on dermatologists to learn the most important ultrasound planes which there are in musculoskeletal ultrasound. And we further tested this in another study, which is already published, the PSOZONE study, where dermatologists used musculoskeletal ultrasound to early diagnose psoriatic arthritis, and it really worked quite well. And what we did now in our current abstract, we used this ultrasound curriculum to test teledidactic versus on-campus musculoskeletal ultrasound training um, in medical students. And how we did this, we did the pre-OSCE, so an objective structured clinical examination, a practical exam of ultrasound skills before the training and after the training. And we had one group assigned with 30 medical students doing on-campus training and the other one doing solely teledidactic training. In both training courses, we involved peer tutors to just 
decrease the level of interaction from student to student. And we had experts like me who were online and were also available for deeper tasks. Now you ask yourself, perhaps, teledidactic, how does it work? And it's, it's not working. Ultrasound is a practical skill. It is working because every student got his butterfly IQ out portable ultrasound probe and an iPad and they got it home and they were training during these online sessions with their student students or with their friends the ultrasound planes we had the peer tutor who was just improving the plane put it right left deeper increase B mode and so on and at the end of this course which went over 12 weeks we did another practical examination and we found amazing outstanding results The on-campus training had 90% of the possible highest uh, degree they could achieve and the teledidactic achieved even 92%. So numerically, teledidactic ultrasound training was even better. And that is amazing. I mean, we have to go with the time. We have to give students the possibility to treat them teledidactic if they want to, especially if you have students who live far away. They don't have to come to the university. They can train wherever they wanted. And we had the flipped classroom. That means medical students had the possibility to be online whenever they wanted and look at the different teaching courses and just reinforce their skills. That's an excellent result, a very high concordance between your on-site and true. your teledidactic. Um, in terms of the modules that you're teaching, uh, in the poster you talk about musculoskeletal exactly. ultrasound. Do you think there's a possibility of expanding this to other regions of the body? Yeah, definitely. We, we have done this for ultrasound of the abdomen, the thyroid glands and the abdominal vessels. It's the TELOS-1 study, which is published in the European Journal of Ultrasound. Uh, which was solely teledidactic because it was the pandemic. And uh, we also already conducted the TELUS-2 study, teledidactic ultrasound, also abdominal vessels and thyroid, which is currently submitted for publication. Mm -hmm. So I really think this teledidactic teaching is possible. We have to go with the time and we have to be attractive for our medical students and also young doctors in order to de deliver the best teaching at every location. So it's amazing because uh, it, it also uh, covers acute Uh, aspects of uh, yes. care, so acute of care, course. for example, emergency care. Yes. As I suppose for rheumatology, the acute emergency would be the giant cell arthritis, GCA. So tell, tell me, is this applicable in the training for that yes. part of the um, uh, condition? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. Ultrasound is the first diagnostic imaging tool we use now for diagnosis of GCA. It has been implemented in the EULA guidelines recommendations. I was also a member of it, so it's very important. And we have published a paper on this on a patient's prospective study. We performed a blinded evaluation of the temporal artery with a point-of-care device and a high-end device, and giant cell arthritis was diagnosed in every case correctly, not in every vessel, but in every case. So it works. I still see a place for the high-end devices, but really for point-of-care, we want to know if it's really GCA point of care also works with these devices. So um, it's, um, you know, it cut across many different regions of the body and many different conditions as well. What does the future hold with the teledidactic um, training? Yeah. Where can we take this for, uh, further for, for our community in rheumatology? Sure. I think the biggest hassle at the moment is that we cannot deliver ultrasound training at every location in Europe or even across the world. And I think this is the biggest implication that we can offer ultrasound training whatever abdomen, thyroid, or for us, of course, vessels and joints at every location possible, even in China or in Korea or wherever, we can teach these doctors and improve medical care and we don't, do not have to come then to our countries to learn it. 
So that's uh, you know this is the whole idea of moving knowledge and what not moving Definitely. people, yeah. so that this can be done. Yeah. So I suppose in the long term, how do we standardize the the learn the teaching across different yeah. countries and different regions? Will there be an exam that is set, or how do you know yeah. that they've achieved the standard that you set them out to do? Standardization is very important, and it's a very important aspect. I think important is before standardization, really publishing curricula, which we have done, and then adhering to these curricula. And the practical examination we did is an objective structure clinical examination in OSCE, which is completely standardized. Everyone is asked the same questions, do this, do that, start the machine, show us this section, do you see effusion, what is your clinical interpretation. And this is very standardized, so this can be really translated to every location. The only thing you have to do is translate it perhaps to another language, if English is the problem. But normally this could, would, I would not expect uh, any hustles. Yeah, so this is a, is a major improvement in terms of the delivery and innovation, which are very keen, especially we've been discussing about digital health and digital toolkits, so how we can improve the spread of this condition. Um, so for our viewers, you know, as we kind of wrap it up, what would be your take-home message about <laughs> your, your poster that you presented? You. What would be your take-home messages think, for our readers? Yeah, I think my, our take-home message is this teledidactic training works and also an ultrasound. There are these people who say ultrasound is a practical skill. You need to come where and you need to learn it practically. No, it is possible to learn it teledidactic if you have a good teacher, if you have the appropriate machinery like we had. So they really, you can project the live ultrasound sections to the tutors and then it really works. So we look forward to hearing more about your work in the future, future meetings, congresses. And as you advance and really champion ultrasound, <laughs> I think we've never met such a passionate person who, Thank and you. I met you today, and uh, this is why we feel that uh, this would be a good uh, way of trying to deliver teaching, because it's always difficult to get everybody to come in one-to-one -one location. And so today we've learned something new. So thank you very thank much you. for your time. Thanks Again, I would you. advise you to have a look at Abstract 2079 uh, from Dr. Valentin Sheffer. Thank you very much. Thank you very much as well. Bye. Hi, Room Now. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate with Dr. Catherine Bakewell, who's one of my mentors um, from Utah. We are at ACR 2023 in San Diego, and I have the distinct pleasure of talking to Dr. Bakewell about something we really love, which is treatment options for patients in spondyloarthritis, and specifically, what have you learned during this ACR 2023? First. Thank you so much for having me. It has been a really exciting meeting and it's my privilege to get to talk about one of my favorite topics. So I'm gonna tell you about four different abstracts and then something that I think will be fun to watch as it unfolds. First, there was an abstract. This is number 0520. This was Sophia Ramiro who presented an abstract on ixekizumab in ankylosing spondylitis. And it was looking at if patients achieved an ASDAS clinically important improvement by week 12 or 24, that they were highly likely to attain either inactive disease or low disease activity by week 52. Now you remember the old story back many years ago with sertilizumab that we said, hey, if you have an improvement by week 12, stick with the product, you're gonna continue to see improvement, but if you don't, then go ahead and switch up therapies, right? And so this is a continuation, I think, in that same theme of here with ixekizumab, if you get that clinically important improvement as early as week 12 or week 24, then hang with it because you've got a really good likelihood of being in low disease activity by a year, so I like that. Next abstract, Jeff Curtis, this is 0530. 
looks at upadacitinib and AS, and this is in the whole era of wearable technology. So they cool. put these wearables, step counters, get your steps in people, right? And ankylosing spondylitis. So this was from the Select Axis 2 trial, and they were able to show a 20% improvement in the step counts of patients with AS with upadacitinib treatment relative to placebo. What a different kind of outcome, right? Yeah. An objective tracker of patient activity. I love that. So next is an abstract from Martin Rood Wallet. So this is 0521. This looked at bimikizumab and the B-Mobile 1 and 2 trials, both radiographic and non-radiographic ACT-SPA, and it was looking at work productivity. And it showed there was a difference in presenteeism. Don't you love that word? <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me a little bit more about presenteeism. So what does that mean to you? This is something we are guilty of in medicine, right? Yes. It's showing up. It's not absenteeism. It's showing up at work but not doing your best. You exactly. show up when you're ill, when you're not able to give it 100% um, or anywhere near 100% for that matter. So, so they showed a difference <laughs> in presenteeism, work productivity, and activity impairment for patients treated with bimikizumab relative to placebo at week 16 with further improvements by week 52. So awesome. here patients are really truly functioning better uh, and showing up at work feeling their best. That makes a big difference. So next is gonna be abstract 0529. This is Sabine Kugler. And I just wanted to say, I do believe there is a growing interest and emphasis as there should be on sex and gender differences in response to therapy. Yes. So this looked at secukinumab in patients with active axial spinal arthritis, and this was from the ACULA study. So this is 621 patients from a German cohort, and they used machine learning to cluster the patients by baseline characteristics and then response to secukinumab at a year. They found the men had higher CRP, the women tended to have higher ASAS health index, ASAS HI scores. But by a year with secukinumab, those differences had resolved. And so here, at least, there's one study that shows an equal response by gender. But I think the definitive trial on this is yet to come. And this is what I will leave you with. This is the SAGE trial. So this is run out of Grappa uh, with Leahy Ader at the helm. And they had 121 different applicants. Okay. To be a part of the study, they selected 36 different sites. And it is a prospective study, so they're enrolling patients with psoriatic arthritis, looking at the sex and gender differences in response to therapy. So far for the patients enrolled, about half of them are on a TNF inhibitor, a quarter on a 17, maybe 20% on a jack, about 8.5% on a 23. And follow this over time. We're going to see how the different genders respond, and they're going to hopefully give us some insight into how much of this is related to inflammation, sex hormones, social support, network, that kind of thing. So I think that's going to be really exciting to see what that shows us. Well, I hope we get a, a cut on that next year, too. I mean, AI and and wearables, right? We all wear wearables at this point. It's true. So why, why can't we be using it <laughs> to further what we do, right? We're all attached to our phones, so this is good. I'm going to be interested to see what happens with this age trial as well so hopefully we'll have a new um new more new and more information on that next year so like no me too thank you of course thank you <laughs> no dr bakewell thank you um and check out roomnow.com for this and additional updates from acr 2023 hi it's acr convergence 2023 i'm dr eric dine uh, from atlantic health and uh, excited to talk more about some of the great abstracts that we're seeing at the conference today. I'm going to talk about abstract 0495, which is the ISER study uh, presented by Dr. Plaza uh, from 13 hospitals in Spain on axial spondylarthritis or, or spondylarthritis in general. 
Um, we know that spondyloarthritis has an overlap with IBD, and, and this study looked at how much undiagnosed disease there is in our spondyloarthritis patients. Uh, this is very relevant to consider, of course, because there is that overlap, um, but there are real treatment um, implications, and, and particularly when we think about medications like the IL-17 class that have a contraindication in IBD. Uh, so the study sought to determine the prevalence of undiagnosed inflammatory bowel disease in patients with spondylarthritis. This included ankylosing spondylitis, both radiographic and non-radiographic, as well as psoriatic arthritis. There were 559 patients included, a mean age of uh, just over 50 years old, about half of them were male. 37% uh, radiographic uh, axial spondylitis, 36% uh, had peripheral um, uh, PSA, so those being the two biggest classes uh, that made up the group. Um, they looked at the screening test for IBD using the, the fecal calprotectin. And when they looked at it, they found that 47% of patients with psoriatic arthritis had a fecal calprotectin of greater than 80 micrograms per gram uh, versus 53% um, in axial spinal arthritis. So about 50% in both groups um, and, and just over 50% in, in the spondylarthropathy, uh, the axial family. 80% of the radiographic axial spondylarthritis had a high fecal calprotectin compared to just 20% in the non-radiographic. So radiographic definitely being a risk factor for this higher fecal calprotectin. Um, the mean FC values were also higher in the radiographic AXPOD patients, uh, pretty much 400 compared to about 300 in the non-radiographic and the PSA subgroup. Overall, um, when they went back to the patients, it, it looked like 10% of them did have a family history of IBD, uh, and almost 15% had clinical manifestations compatible with IBD, including asthenia in, in half of those patients, abdominal pain, chronic diarrhea, um, and, and up to 15%. Uh, so they did work up for these patients as appropriate, and they did uh, 189 colonoscopies uh, to look into these patients with a high fecal calprotectin. Um, 167 um, uh, of these biopsies were for the higher fecal calprotectin. Uh, and of these, of these colonoscopies, um, almost 40% had some uh, pathological finding, mostly aphthous ulcers in 66% of them, superficial ulcers, some erythema, uh, and, and these were mostly located in the terminal ileum. So based on that, um, there were a lot of new diagnoses. Uh, 23 of the original 559 patients were diagnosed with IBD. This is 4.4%. 22 had a new diagnosis of Crohn's. One had an unclassified IBD. In these 23 patients that had this new diagnosis, 17% had a family history of IBD. 30% uh, had clinical symptoms compatible with IBD. Um, <clears throat> and so I, I think it's important to, um, to think about this in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, certainly, axial spondyloarthritis and IBD have a clear overlap. And, and in this, um, about one in 25 patients were noticed to have a, an undiagnosed IBD. Um, it, um, you know, starting with uh, what they did in the study, family history and clinical history are big, um, are big drivers, are, are big, um, you know, are, are big things that we should start with in the clinic to look at those. Uh, but even with that, there were patients that had uh, fecal calprotectin as the uh, potential sign that there might have been uh, some inflammation in their GI tract. So um, how much of that um, is of clinical significance? 
Uh, I, I think we need some more information, but I think it's a, an important study to uh, number one, look at that overlap of the disease, put some numbers on the potentially undiagnosed IBD, and, and the use of fecal calprotectin, which I think could be a great screening tool in some of our patients to look for IBD. Um, so a great abstract over there from the ISER study and a lot more uh, on this ACR convergence on room now. Go. I'm Anthony Chan from London, United Kingdom, here at um, ACR 23 in San Diego reporting for room now. And today we've had a very nice uh, new information coming up uh, in the area of axial spondyloarthritis. One of the issues that we have is the issue of possibly overdiagnosis of patients with axial spar. In the drive to reduce delays to diagnosis with access to more MRI, we also are faced with the possibility of overcall or overdiagnosis. And one of the posters presented today, poster number 1392, uh, deals with this issue in a very novel way. And I'd like to um, welcome uh, Professor Dennis Padupni from the Charité Hospital in Berlin, who has done some very nice work looking, looking at the use of telemedicine and also a more central referral system to review scans. So Dennis, welcome to today's uh, talk. And I wonder whether you could introduce to us your paper, 1392. Thank you very much, uh, Tony, uh, also for interest in our work. Indeed, we established a central platform for, for the assessment of clinical and imaging information from um, patients suspected with arthritis. We recruited a community-based rheumatologist and orthopedist and asked them to upload clinical information, imaging information for the central evaluation done by Sinofon Borilakos and myself. Um, we are presenting today results after uh, 277 patients recruited in the study and indeed we could confirm um, in, uh, in the result what we already expected. We see that in patients uh, where exospondylitis is excluded, mm -hmm. In most of them, we could confirm that it is indeed not an exospondylitis. Mm -hmm. But in patients locally diagnosed with exospondylitis, we saw an indicator of substantial overcall. Mm -hmm. In around one third of the patients, we saw signs of other conditions and not of exospondylitis. And these are patients locally diagnosed with mm -hmm. exospondylitis. Mm -hmm. So they must have uh, considered the possibility of arthritis, either on imaging or clinically at the time when they made the diagnosis. In those third of patients, what other causes could have presented as possible exospar in your, in your analysis? Yeah, um, there are uh, several uh, potential indicators that resulted into suspicion and then finally into a diagnosis of arthritis. It was the uh, presence of inflammatory back pain, mm. Um, that is a syndrome and not necessarily uh, specific for inflammatory problem in the axial skeleton. B27 positivity that could be mm. present just by chance. And in more than a half of uh, patients uh, with indicators of uh, being misdiagnosed, there was a presence of unspecific bone marrow edema in sacroiliac joints. Mm. So we think that indeed, as you said, the broad introduction of MRI 
and being uncritical to findings on, on the uh, MRI might result into overcall of exospondyloarthritis in the presence of just unspecific bone marrow edema or bone marrow edema caused by mechanical stress. Yeah. So when you were an analyzing them and you um, confirmed that didn't have axial SBA, what are some of the tips for us? What are the pitfalls or areas where we could consider uh, important when we're trying to make a diagnosis or exclude a diagnosis of axial spark? Yeah, very good. Um, so, first of all, um, the good quality imaging is really important. It was an eye-opening uh, finding for us to see that the protocols for sacroiliac joints they were in most of the cases very old, so about 20 years old, and they do not give you a chance to analyze sacroiliac joints in an appropriate way. In those uh, MRIs where um, assessment was positive, uh, possible, we realized um, that, um, as, I, as I mentioned, bone marrow edema itself was a trigger for, for overdiagnosis, um, and we, we know nowadays clear indicators or clear uh, parameters how to differentiate mechanically induced bone marrow edema from um, bone marrow edema caused by, by spondyloarthritis. The localization of bone marrow edema is very important. So bone marrow edema, uh, which is localized in a very anterior portion of the joint, not in the mid part of the joint, is rather unspecific. Bone marrow edema close to the capsule or to the intestinal compartment might be unspecific. And then in patients coming to us with already long-standing history of back pain, it is very important to look at bone marrow edema in the context of structural changes. If spondylarthritis is present for several years, you would always expect some structural changes. But then if you see bone marrow edema uh, without any structural changes uh, on T1 or live sequence, especially no erosions, no backfill, then in most of the cases it would, would be a rather unspecific bone marrow edema or bone marrow edema caused by yes. mechanical stress. So those, uh, those early changes on the MRI being specific or non-specific was quite a good predictor of a future diagnosis of Excel SBA from the, your study. This is yeah. correct, yeah. correct, and uh, we, we see as a potential for an improved training for radiologists but also for rheumatologists on how to differentiate between mechanical problems and through truly inflammatory changes. It's very uh, innovative, your mechanism of delivering this through telemedicine and a more like a virtual setup. How easy was it to set up with so many different teams around you and to have a central place to read this? Yeah, um, um, I think that this can be used as a, as a model. So we, we, we wanted to approach not university settings, but indeed community settings mm -hmm. and uh, the central assessment by, uh, done by, 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 by people dealing with arthritis and I think this this model can be can be transferred also to, to other settings to other countries yes I think I think we would you know welcome uh, the use of uh, such a such a setup because uh, increasingly many of these uh, scans are read by non non-specialized radiologists uh, there's also the need for training and education in that space would the future be that the referrals come in, the quality will start to improve? Maybe there could be a two-way conversation between the centre and the and the periphery? Absolutely. This is one of the aims of this, this project and I see a, a very high educational value of this because we not only educate on interpretation of the imaging but we also ask rheumatologists to contact the radiologists to improve the protocols, to apply the modern protocols 
um, um, uh, in order to improve the image quality. Yes, that's excellent. So what will be your top three takeaway things from your poster today which you want the audience to kind of consider for you? What will be your top three? Yes, so um, um, apply modern protocols for MRI imaging. Uh, look always carefully at uh, MRI of sacroiliac joints because bone marrow edema can be induced by mechanical stress and when looking at bone marrow edema always define what is the anatomical localization of this so very anterior portion of the joint is rather unspecific and always interpret bone marrow edema in the context of structural changes which are normally present in exospondyl arthritis. Thank you very much Dennis. It also shows us that we are better when we work together, when we collaborate there's so much more we can, uh, we can do together to improve the quality of our diagnosis. So thank you very much for your time and thank you very much. have a good conference. Thank you.